We're shifting gears a little bit. We've been in Lent. Thanks to all the folks who contributed to all the different activities, all the different special services. Uh, we really appreciate all of your help. And thanks to those who helped us on the work day yesterday. Appreciate you coming out. But now we're in the season of Easter. And it seems like the climate declared that winter is over this week. Though I'm a little suspicious. And I'm not sure I want a whole summer of 90 degree weather. But I'm grateful for the, uh, the change in the temperature. I am having a little bit of trouble with allergies this morning. Um, but that comes with the season, right? I knew a person once who was so absorbed with her favorite sports team that once they reached the championship game, she was so nervous she couldn't bear to watch. She said that she would be so discouraged if they lost that she just couldn't bear to see it happen again. So she didn't watch the championship game, just waited till it was over to see who won after she had calmed down a bit. Today's passage in the scripture has a similar irony. On the greatest day of human history, on the day when Christ validates his authority over all the earth and proves all of his promises, on the day that sin and death are defeated, on this huge day of victory, the disciples are hiding, cowering in fear, trembling in grief. There couldn't be a starker contrast between the two. It ought to be this. But for those who were closest to him, it's this. Listen to the account. This is John 20. Verses 19 to 31. John 20, 19 to 31. I'd invite you as you're able to stand for the reading. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, this is resurrection day, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said that, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, 
Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you think about it for a moment, Jesus' first words to his cowering in fear disciples could have been very different. He might have said upon seeing them again, so here you are, you cowards. Could have said that, would have been appropriate. Or or maybe, I wonder where you had all run off to. Or thinking back to his prediction that they would all abandon him, he could have just said, told you so. I mean, what first words would you imagine coming from Jesus? In Jesus' mouth, there is no judgment. There's no assignment of guilt. There's no embarrassing words. There's no digging up the past. His words are simple and repeated. Peace be with you. Peace. Yes, this is a standard greeting in the time and in the day. But given how many other greetings might have been more appropriate, This gift of peace is especially meaningful. If you think about it, even if Jesus chooses not to remind them of their recent past, can you believe for a second that they are not thinking about it? They see Jesus, they're remembering all that they have done, all, you know, if you owe somebody money, Every time you see them, you think about the money you owe them, right? If someone says insulting things about you behind your back and you find out about it, every time you see them, those thoughts bubble to the surface. If someone takes advantage of you, every time your paths cross, the offense comes to your mind. And so as as soon as Jesus is standing there among the disciples, Every disciple is both amazed that he is present, but also thinking about what he will say or do because they remember their betrayal and their part in it. But Jesus doesn't lead with rebuke, does he? He leads with peace. And never forget that Jesus is our model in all things. I mean, we could spend the full sermon talking about the peace, this gift of peace that Jesus gives to us and asking ourselves the questions, do we speak peace in all of our situations and of all of our, in all of our relationships? Do we model the character of Jesus who, when betrayed, speaks peace? After offering the peace and 
talking about some things, Jesus shows them the wounds, right? Proving his identity, but also making a powerful statement about the nature of sin. Jesus, it's, we understand, still bears the scars of the wounds. He did on that day, he does on this day. And it's interesting to note that the scars of sin have not been removed. That's true in a lot of areas, isn't it? Some of us continue to bear the scars of sin. But in spite of the fact that the scars may remain, there is a new story, a new narrative to explain these scars. These scars that once symbolized sin now remind us that Jesus carried our sins and our sorrows. And he bears the wounds to prove that he has carried them for us. But rather than focusing on the, on the sin that those scars represent, we now focus on the fact that Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has defeated sin and death and is able to bring us healing from both sin and sorrow. Healing is in his wings, we're told. Healing is in the hands of Jesus. In the nail-scarred hands of Jesus, the nail prints now remind us not of the pain that he suffered, but of the victory that he won. And for all of us, the scars of sin, that story can be rewritten by the mercy and grace of God. And that should give us amazing optimism and hope in these days. The scars prove the victory. The scars prove that Jesus really did overcome. The scars prove the price Jesus paid to bring us new life. If you take a moment to think about the people involved in this resurrection story so far, it seems to me they generally fit into four categories. The first one is the disciple John. And when you consider his position in this story, he's with the disciples in the room, and yet he was already in the tomb earlier in the day. And in the Gospel of John, we, we read that he saw the grave clothes and believed. So, from the evidence of the recent past, what he saw, he knew Jesus went into the tomb. The clothes were there. That was all he needed to believe. That was enough to inspire faith in John. But then we have Mary. Mary, who doesn't come to believe as quickly, perhaps, but when, but when she hears him speak, when he says, Mary, then she understands, and then she believes. She believes on the evidence of God's word, God's spoken word to her. The disciples believe when he physically appears to them in this room, and they have evidence from, from a direct confrontation with Jesus. They believe because they see, right? John believes before he sees, but the rest believe when they see. And then we have Thomas, who believes based on physical evidence that he can touch, right? 
He's not going to believe until he sees the scars, sees the wound, has opportunity to verify exactly what Jesus has done. He waits for the evidence of touching. He, he has to push past his doubts in a more significant way than the rest. And when I think about these sort of four categories, loose categories of belief, I wonder how it applies to us as a people. I mean, some of us need only to suspect that Jesus is who he was and who he said he was, and we're ready to leap in. And it may just be due to the nature of our lives. It may just be how we were raised or whatever. Some of us really need to hear God's voice before we're ready to be convinced. Some of us need to be confronted with Jesus in a very basic way, maybe through trauma or sickness or confusion or unpleasant circumstances. There has to be a meeting before I'm able to really get past everything that keeps me from seeing Christ and I can perceive him. But some of us are very stubborn and don't believe easily and we're not about to be duped. We've been around the block, we've lived a great deal, we're not sure about what will be required or we're not confident what others will think if we choose to believe and we wanna feel the nail prints in the hand. I mean, it's gonna take a little more to convince us that Jesus is who he said he was. And what's amazing to me in this story is that in almost the same way that Jesus speaks peace to his betrayers, Jesus does not condemn Thomas for what he requires in order to believe. There's no, there's no judgment of Thomas here in this passage. In fact, we shouldn't miss the fact of how important it is that Jesus comes back to them for Thomas's sake. I mean, he knows that Thomas isn't present in the room on his first meeting. He knows that Thomas is requiring nail print and wound of the side print in order to believe. And he comes back to make sure Thomas is not left behind. You know, it reminds me of the story of the blind man that we spoke about a few weeks ago. Remember the man who's born blind? Uh, Jesus puts the mud on his eyes, the man's healed, and then nobody recognizes him, and all his friends say, you sort of look like that blind man. Did that guy have a twin? I mean, you look like him, but, but you're blind. You, you've always been blind, and now you're not blinded. And because your identity was the blind man, we don't recognize you anymore because you're not blind. And so the chief priests and the scribes find out about it. They get involved in the controversy. They call the guy's parents in. They harass the parents. They harass him. They finally get so frustrated with the guy who's been healed that they boot him out of the synagogue. And, and now he's left. He, for the first time in his life, can see. And what he sees is that all of his social circles, all of his available connections to the society have been crushed and lay in ruins because he's been kicked out of the society by the church leaders. And Jesus does not leave him there. Jesus comes back for him. Jesus finds him. Jesus identifies himself. So if the blind man wasn't sure how he got healed or whatever or what he should believe in, Jesus gives him a place to anchor his new life and say, I am the Messiah, and you are a child of the kingdom of God, and I'm not about to leave you behind. 
And Jesus is not about to leave Thomas behind. I mean, think about it. What could have happened to Thomas if Jesus doesn't come back for him? He could have just been left out. Uh, The others may have moved on because Thomas wouldn't have joined them in belief. Thomas would just be a casualty. Lost faith, left beside the road perhaps. I think there's a couple of things that can be said here. And I'm curious, what interest do you and I show to the stragglers? Those who have been left behind, who have separated themselves from the fellowship of church, or who got lost in the midst of COVID or in life situations or, or maybe injured by the hurtful words of even maybe some of our members. What, what do we do to the stragglers? Do we embrace Jesus as our model in those situations? The Jesus who goes after the blind man who's kicked out and goes after Thomas who won't believe. How, how do we do that? Do we pursue? Do we search? Or are we just comfortable leaving folks behind? It's a hard question that we have to wrestle with. Secondly, we should also notice from the way this story plays out that folks initially come to faith in very different ways. There is no one size fits all when it comes to approaching faith in Christ. Different folks come in different ways and the only thing we can say is what matters is that in time they come to faith in Jesus Christ. One way is not superior to any of the others, but we must remember that there are some folks who will need to touch him, some to see him, others to encounter him. The goal for everyone is the same. New life in Jesus Christ, entry into the kingdom of God. And once Thomas proclaims that Jesus is indeed Lord and his God, John's gospel comes to a complete cycle. I mean, the circle is completed. In John 1, John told us, in the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God. And now for the first time in the gospel, we have Thomas proclaiming Jesus is God. And from beginning to end, John has made his case that this Jesus is God. But there's another affirmation in this passage that's critical. Jesus, who has been sent by the Father to fulfill the mission of the Trinity, now sends his disciples on the mission as well. They have inherited the mission of announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand. The doors are open. Men and women can enter at the gracious invitation of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. This is the mission of the disciples. And Jesus knows a critical piece of this is the fact that they can't accomplish it without the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's one thing to give somebody a job. Hey, would you go wash all the windows? It's another thing to give somebody a job. Go wash the windows. Oh, and here's the bucket, and here's the soap, and here's the cleaning things you're gonna need to do that job. And you can have off from your other responsibilities on Friday from three to seven. All of the enablement to wash the windows is provided. 
If you just say to someone, go wash the windows, and they don't know how to do it, and they don't have the equipment, and they don't have the supplies, the job doesn't get done. And so Jesus could have just said, hey, it's your job, disciples, now to announce the coming of the kingdom of God, that it's open and you can go in. And they would say, okay, and like, how do we do that? And Jesus says, oh, don't worry. Breath, spirit. He sends the Holy Spirit, which is the enablement of God to carry out the mission. And we affirm today that Jesus has breathed on us. Just as God breathed on the clay that he formed into Adam and Eve. Just as God breathed on the bones in Ezekiel's vision. Just as what we're going to see happen on the day of Pentecost. Jesus breathes on them the breath of God, which is the Holy Spirit. And they now have everything they need to accomplish the mission that has been given to them. He gives them the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them in the same way that Jesus breathes life on all of his fathers, all of his followers. We who were dead are now alive. In lives where sin had freely been in control, grace has now outpaced sin. Jesus has turned our grief to rejoicing, our mourning into dancing, just as we have been promised. And now we have the same mission that the disciples have been given. Here's the crisis of the situation. You understand a crisis is the turning point where all options are available. We don't know what, which way things will turn out, but everything is in this pregnant moment waiting to be decided. This is, this is the crisis of the situation here. The thing that makes faith in God possible in our world today is the witness of Christians. Jesus has trusted his mission into our hands. We are his ambassadors. And so the responsibility for proclaiming the kingdom and the advancement of this kingdom, he places in our hands. It feels like he's risking quite a lot on us. It feels like he's giving us his most priceless treasure and saying, please be careful, don't drop it. We have a, a, a snow globe in our family that was given to Nancy by her father many years ago. It's one of those priceless little fragile things and every once in a while, we'll have young children come to our home and they'll want to pick it up and shake it because that's what you do with snow globes. And Nancy's breath sort of catches in her throat and she thinks about the fact of two-year-olds holding her priceless snow globe because it's precious. It's a treasure. It's a reminder of her father who is long gone now. And what must Jesus be thinking about us when he hands his entire life's work, his mission into our hands and says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. You've got to carry this message out. Unless we speak, the message will not be understood Unless we are the ones rejoicing, who will dance with us? Unless we preserve and make available the written word of God, 
the witness to the great and mighty works of God, they'll be lost if we don't hold up the Bible for the world to see. The mission is on our shoulders now. But we're gonna have to express this mission in all those categories we talked about previously because we want everyone to be able to understand. Some folks will believe simply based on the fact that they were raised in the church and this is what they know. Like John, they see the evidence surrounding them and they choose to believe. Others will believe because God speaks to them through his word. It may be that you shared the word of God with them or someone gave them a Bible or they found the Bible in the drawer in a hotel room. Whatever the case, the written word, the word of God will catch their attention. Others are going to need to see Jesus appear to them through your life. Never forget, folks are watching you. They want to know if your life and your words match. They want to know how you handle adversity. They want to see how you treat other people. They want to see what kind of God you really serve by watching you in action. Jesus shows up for them if he can be seen in you. But there will be others still who will only believe if Jesus shows up for them in person in a very real way. And Jesus does this in lots of ways, all the time. Doesn't leave the blind man alone. Doesn't leave Thomas alone. And you have probably heard the testimonies of folks who believe they've encountered Jesus. And Jesus broke through all the barriers that they had erected to their belief. But never forget, regardless of which of these different ways Christ works through us, the primary mission, telling the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, has been placed in our hands. Now, you might think, Pastor, this is rather ponderous. Isn't this a great responsibility? I'm feeling nervous. I don't want to be entrusted with such a great treasure, but here's the good news. There's no point in despairing because God will help us. He has an invested interest in his kingdom's progress and he will breathe the same spirit on us that he breathed on the disciples. He always attends those who are on mission for him. When we are on mission, God will help us. You have everything that you need to succeed. You have the word of God. You have the constant companionship of the Holy Spirit, which means all the wisdom of God is available to you. You have wise counselors and Bible teachers to offer spiritual direction. You have the fellowship of believers to support and encourage you. And you have the promise of the word of God. If God be for us, who can stand against us? So it seems to me that everything is in our favor and that the success of the kingdom of God is almost guaranteed. Well, you know what? It's promised. Better than guaranteed. It's promised. There's a parable in the New Testament. A guy goes out to sow seeds. And he's broadcasting the seeds, throwing it around. And Jesus tells the story. Some falls on ground that is stony or pressed down or choked with weeds and, and, and the seed falls on all kinds of 
different ground. Four, four different kinds are in the parable. And some of the seed thrives and some of the seed dies. And you look at that and you might get discouraged and think, ah, you know, the success rate, what is it? I mean, the point of the parable is this. No matter how much bad soil is around, if we will faithfully sow the seed of the gospel, the return will be outrageous. 30 times, 60 times, 100 times as much of the seed as we, as we have planted. Because the promise is that the kingdom of God will prevail and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we know the outcome. The question is, will we be faithful? Will we be encouraged to believe that God really is going to enable us to proclaim this kingdom with power so that Jesus can be seen in our lives and can appear to the people around us who so desperately need to know the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so I say, let's renew our efforts and get to it. Let's be people of the mission so that God can use us to proclaim his kingdom to his glory. And now may the glory of God shine in your faces as you go from here to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come, that the doors are open and everyone may enter. To the glory of God now and ever, amen.